Welcome to this week's episode of Plot Summary. I'm Ted Bohorquez with News Talk KZRG. This is where I take everything that Steve, Peter, and myself discussed this week on the Morning News Watch, and I summarize it in a nice little plot summary for you. Got a lot of stuff going on this week. We're going to start off with Trump's poll numbers. Trump's polling numbers among Republicans is actually on the rise since the indictment. Now, this is what a lot of people were kind of expecting when Alvin Bragg indicted former President Donald Trump in New York over uh, some possible hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels, the porn actress, back during the 2016 election. Some people were worried that this would turn Trump into a martyr, and it seems like that's exactly what happened. His poll numbers among Republicans are up, but his favorability among the average American is still pretty darn low. So Republicans dig them. Average American, that is people on the left and that are the fence sitters, the ones that kind of sway the vote one way or another, they're not really fond of him. So there's that to, to consider and look out for. The, the good news for Trump fans, though, is that Trump did widen the gap considerably between himself and Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is, is a very popular household name right now in Republican circles and among Republican voters in this country. A couple things to note. Number one, Ron DeSantis has not actually officially announced that he's running for president yet. Number two, he might not announce that he's running for president. And number three, the gap is now pretty wide between him and Trump. So if, you know, he wants to run for president, he better get that ball rolling. Among Republican voters, 58% say they will be voting for Donald Trump and 21% say they will be voting for DeSantis. Those numbers were much, much closer just last week. And now they're pretty darn wide. Now, even though Trump is riding that wave of Republican support uh, for Republican primary voters, he's still very much so struggling to gain a foothold with the American public in general. We all saw in 2020 that the big problem with Trump's campaign is he did not secure the fence sitters, primarily white suburban women. White suburban women, they don't really like Trump. I think it's his hair. I think his hair confuses them and makes them angry. But something about him, I don't know what it could be, does not speak very well to suburban white women. And essentially, more or less, they were kind of the big group that swayed it towards Biden as opposed to Trump. So, yeah, he's doing great with people that already love Trump, but he's not doing very well with the people that don't already love Trump, the people that you kind of need to start campaigning for. So it's still kind of a problem. The numbers came out as of April 7th. Trump's unfavorable rating, unfavorable rating climbed to 61%. That from 55%. 61% of people view Trump unfavorably. Not only that, but let's look at the flip side of that. Favorability, people that like him. His favorability rating was 29%. And that went to 25%. So his unfavorability went up, his favorability went down. Not looking good for him. Which is kind of counterintuitive because you think that when it says 58% of Republican primary voters are supporting Trump, you think that that's a lot. Unfortunately, 61% of the country hates his guts. At least according to this poll. Now let's compare that to Biden. Right now, Trump's unfavorability rating is 61%. Biden's unfavorability rating is at 49%. So for all the bad Brandon has been doing in some eyes, he's still less unfavorable than Donald Trump, according to this. Not only that, 
But Biden's favorability rating, remember Trump is at 25%, Biden is now at 34%, nearly 10 points up than Trump. And even crazier, just a month before, Biden's favorability rating was 32. Now it's 34. So so people are, are more interested in Biden now. People like Biden a little bit more now than they did previously. Pretty crazy. Something to keep in mind when looking at media coverage, frankly, because... Sometimes the media can frame things one way, but numbers don't. Pretty simple. But that's how Trump's looking right now. That's how Trump's polls look are looking right now. Let's look at what's going on with him in terms of lawsuits, which he's in a lot of. As of this week, former President Donald Trump is suing his ex-lawyer, Michael Cohen, for more than $500 million, <laughs> which is crazy. Now, Trump's suing Cohen alleging a breach in his attorney-client privileges. That is, famously, if I hire a lawyer, whatever I tell the lawyer, I have attorney-client privileges. They are not allowed to share that information to anyone under any circumstances without my approval. And Michael Cohen wrote, like, three books all about Trump, all of his dirt. He's also went on, like, a million different, you know, news sites and and interviewed with journalists spilling all the dirt on Trump. Now Trump is suing him, saying, look, dude, you're spreading falsehoods. That's the word Trump's u- that Trump used. And he said that Cohen is likely trying to embarrass or detriment Trump's future. He thinks Cohen is going after him politically, specifically. Trump also pointed out, not only about the attorney-client privileges, but he also pointed out that Michael Cohen signed a contract that had a confidentiality agreement, which was required to be employed by Trump. Michael Cohen signed that. He said, I I won't say anything. And he did. So he broke a contract, a specific contract, and lawyer code and and all that good stuff. So a lot of people are saying Trump might have some grounds to sue here. Now, is he going to get half a billion dollars? Probably not. I don't know why he sued him for that much, but probably just a flex. But, you know, it's interesting to see Trump back in the the offensive, back in the hot seat, because Trump's been playing a lot of defense as of late. There's been a lot of lawsuits against him. Now, all of a sudden, we're seeing him start to kind of strike back a little bit. Some people are excited about that. Some people are worried about that. Me? I'm just curious about that. Let's see where this baby goes. Speaking of lawsuits against Trump, we got a nice little update this week on the Manhattan lawsuit brought to you by Democrat Alvin Bragg. Alvin Bragg indicted Trump over uh, falsifying business records. Specifically, back to Michael Cohen, uh, supposedly Trump paid Stormy Daniels, uh, I think it was like $34,000 or something like that, in hush money to not talk about the affair that he had with her back in like 2006. Now, this happened when Trump was running for president. His finances are public and highly scrutinized when he's running for president, so he couldn't pay her directly. So supposedly, as the story goes, he had his lawyer, Michael Cohen, pay Stormy Daniels the $34,000, and then after the presidency, Trump paid Michael Cohen back in uh, 34 sums of money. You know, he would send him $5,000, and he would not write, this is for the hush money payments to stop the story about my affair from becoming public knowledge. He didn't write that in the memo, because that would be silly. He wrote for legal purposes. He wrote legal advising bill. You know, basically, he supposedly lied about what that money was for, 
And that is what the indictment is about. Well, this week, interestingly enough, the House Judiciary Chair, Jim Jordan, a Republican from Ohio. Jim Jordan was a fan favorite among Republicans to be Speaker of the House. He respectfully declined, and it went to Kevin McCarthy instead. That very Jim Jordan is now investigating Alvin Bragg's indictment into Donald Trump. And in response to that, Alvin Bragg is suing Jim Jordan for his investigation into Bragg's indictment into Trump. So, I mean, it was, it's, it's like kind of goofy. This is like high school. You know, you're like throwing rocks at each other here. Bragg indicts Trump. Jordan investigates Bragg. Bragg sues Jordan for investigating. That's it. That's what we got. Jim Jordan is investigating Bragg because, as Jim Jordan says, the indictment, Bragg's indictment, is a transparent campaign to intimidate and attack political opponents. Now, Alvin Bragg's lawsuit against Jim Jordan says, quote, Congress has no power to supervise state criminal prosecutions, nor does Congress had the power to serve subpoenas for the personal agenda of the investigators or to punish those investigated, end quote. That's, uh, that's what Bragg hit back with, which, in my opinion, he's got a, he's got a point there. There is definitely a line between, between local, state, and federal government. Personally, I think the smaller the federal government, the better. I think the stronger the state and local governments are, the better. Well, Bragg is saying, hey, this is state government at work, baby. And like it or not, it's a double-edged blade, right? The window looks both ways. I want states to have more power. Here's the state flexing that very power. So mm, kind of food for thought about a little something called unintentional consequences. But can't have it both ways. That's the way the news goes. All right. That's pretty much all we got on Trump this week. Uh, switching gears here to a little-known individual named Brandon, good old Joe Biden. President Biden announced on Thursday of this week that his administration will be extending health care coverage to migrants who have arrived illegally but still remain in the United States under the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, also known as DACA. And to summarize what the DACA is, is during the Obama administration, there was this crackdown on illegal immigrants, specifically people that came into this country, mother and father, with a child that were born in, in either Guatemala or Mexico or, or any uh, Asia, Europe, India, wherever. These people that came as a family came to this country. And there was a little bit of a controversy because some of the children who were born not in this country and are not legal citizens came to this country when they were two years old. And the moral issue that was big in the public at that time was the United States is the only country slash home that they ever knew. So even though they're technically from Guatemala and technically not U.S. citizens, is it fair to send those children back when they don't even speak the language? They don't understand the food. They don't understand the culture. And and a lot of the times those children thought they were American citizens. They had no clue they weren't. Because they've only ever remembered living in the United States. I mean, like, for example, like, can you imagine if you were born and raised in Southeast Kansas your entire life? You've only ever known Southeast Kansas. You go, no, dude, I'm an American. I was born and raised in Southeast Kansas. Imagine you right now sitting at home listening to this. And then all of a sudden it comes out 
Well, actually, you were born in Europe. Actually, you were born in, in, in Norway, so you're deported. You'd be like, well, hold on. I, I built an entire family here. I've lived my entire life here. I've worked my entire life here. I've been paying taxes this entire time. What do you mean you're kicking me out? I, I've, been, I've been here the whole time. You can't do that. And so there was a big sort of moral panic at the time. And by the way, also a legal and judicial panic of what do we do here? What's the move? Well, some people said, okay, send the parents back to their country and then keep the kids here. But then some people said, well, hold on. Some of these kids are like 15 years old. You can't expect a 15-year-old to just have his parents gone. Like that doesn't really make sense either. So then people said, okay, keep the parents here too. But then the problem with that is then then nothing happened. You didn't solve the problem. Then you just still have a bunch of illegal immigrants living in the country, which was the initial problem in some people's eyes to begin with. So there was this big issue. Long story short, Obama created the DACA program, which allowed a lot of leniency for childhood arrivals, arrivals being immigrants, essentially. Well, Biden announced this week that he not only wants to keep that going strong, but he also wants to expand it by providing free health care to those very recipients, those very members of the DACA program, so to speak. Now, to date, there are about 580,000, quote-unquote, dreamers. Those are people of the DACA program, the, the children, the illegal children of illegal immigrants, so to speak. 580,000 of them. And those are just the ones that U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services know about. I would say probably add uh, like half half of that more. So what's that, 290,000 more on top of that. And he wants to do universal basic health care essentially for, for just them, not for the American citizens. He wants it just for the, the, the dreamer peeps. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, that was announced this week. Great. Great news for all, I suppose. So, yeah. We have that going for us, which is nice. And by the way, if you're thinking like, well, hold on, how is this program still a thing? Uh, Well, Trump actually tried to, when he was president, he tried to end the program uh, immediately. (laughs) In in his very first year as president of the United States, he immediately tried to end the DACA program. But ultimately, his attempt was subdued by a Supreme Court decision in 2020. The Supreme Court ruled that Trump could not end the DACA program. So we still got it. Speaking of Biden announcements, another big one that came out this week is President Biden had said on Monday of this week that he fully intends to run for re-election in 2024, but he's not quite ready to formally announce yet. Now, this is now this in itself isn't news because he's been saying that for months and months now. So like whatever, you know, it's sort of the classic phrase, you know, go or get off the pot, Buster Brown, make your decision here. But the reason why this week's announcement was very special and important is because on Monday he said he's going to re rerun. But on Thursday, Biden had said in an interview that he's reaching the end of his political career. In fact, he said he's reaching the end of his entire career because, as he said in his words, I'm getting old and I'm nearing the end. This obviously turned a lot of heads this week in the sense of, OK, is he going to run or is he... <laughs> Or is he getting near the end? 
And this is pretty important, not so much for the Republicans, but very much so for the Democrats, because running for president is like a two-year process. It's a long, long haul. And if the Democrats are sitting around waiting for Biden to announce and then he ends up not announcing, he's going to essentially handicap the Democratic race because he's going to put them behind schedule. We already have a ton of Republicans running for president. They are already gearing up. They already got their merch out. They got their slogans out. They're thinking about their vice presidents. They're already getting word that that, that they are running. Nikki Haley. People already know Nikki Haley's name. People are talking about Nikki Haley. That's very important for running for president. Nobody's talking about any potential Democratic candidate right now because none of them have announced yet. Because they're all waiting for Joe Biden. Is he going to run? Is he going to not? That's going to put them at a huge disadvantage. Think about the election as an actual race. The Republicans have already started running. <laughs> the Demo- By the time the Democrats begin the race, the, the Republicans are going to be like 300 yards in front of them. They've got a huge head start, huge lead. So to you, Mr. Brandon, whom I know is definitely listening to this, no doubt in my mind, uh, make up your mind. <laughs> Do something other than talk gibberish and or smell children's hair. Some other another big headline that uh, hit the news this week that we that we discussed quite a bit on the morning news watch at News Talk KZRG. Uh, there's a covid church lawsuit that's definitely turning heads and was really upsetting to a lot of people and uh, including a lot of fence sitters, by the way, sort of middle of the road individuals. A federal appeals court ruled on Monday that three individuals who sued the Kentucky governor for their right to assemble for worship during COVID-19 must be paid over $270,000 in attorney's fees. In back in August of 2020, three individuals received notices logging their attendance at Maryville Baptist Church's Easter service, literally an Easter service. And this notice informed these three individuals that they must quarantine or face, quote, further enforcement measures, end quote. Basically, what this said was, because of COVID lockdowns, you are not allowed to gather and pray and worship on Easter Sunday. Tough luck, Buster Brown. You can't believe in God today. Sorry, pal. That's pretty much what it said. Not really, but you know what I mean. Now, the the churches, obviously, were not happy with this. They said, well, hold on. We have the right to assemble. That is in the Constitution. We have the freedom to assemble. Just because there's COVID going on doesn't mean we're going to be turning off the Bill of Rights and turning off the Constitution. And they said, no, we're going to sue you guys because we are exercising our right to assemble. And the good and exciting news about this court case, in my opinion, at least, is that the Sixth Circuit actually affirmed this lawsuit. The courts said, hey, these people are correct. These preachers are correct. You can't tell them they're not allowed to assemble. And worship just because it's COVID. Well, boy, howdy, that's pretty, uh, you know, exciting to me. That that seems like a step in the right direction. Uh, then that court case got kicked up to a uh, federal appeals court and the federal appeals court said, hey, the Sixth Circuit is correct. Hey, those three individuals are correct. Sorry, governor of Kentucky. You can't uh, you can't banish their freedom to assemble just because there's, quote unquote, an emergency going on. Hey, here's an emergency for you. I ran out of toilet paper. That's an emergency. Are we going to turn off the Constitution for it? No. Just because there's something that you consider an emergency doesn't mean you can turn off people's individual God-given rights. 
That's what the federal appeals court said. That's what that's what the ruling was. I think that's a very positive step in the right direction in terms of seeking freedom. Now, here's where some people were a little upset about that ruling. The governor of Kentucky is now required to pay those people's attorney's fees. These citizens, they those citizens racked up $270,000 in attorney's fees, and the governor has to pay that. But the person that holds the office of governor doesn't have to pay that. The governor has to pay that. The role of governor does, which means that money will be coming out of taxpayer dollars. $270,000 that would have been used for building roads or for paying teachers instead is going to be going to attorney's fees because of this unfair draconian law that the Kentucky governor decided to try and impose on peaceful worshipers. And people were upset by that, saying, really? The governor made an unfair decision to try and ban these people from believing in God, and as punishment, we, the taxpayer, have to pay for it? That doesn't seem fair. And some people were actually getting mad at the three individuals in the court case. But to those who seem like they would be mad at those people, I I would say to you, be upset at the politician who broke the rules, not the people that held him accountable. It is very unfair that the taxpayer has to flip that bill. But unfortunately, sometimes the cost of freedom is very unfair. And I think this was a huge win for freedom. And it was a huge win for anti-COVID lockdown garbo. It was a huge win against all of that. So yeah, that's how that all went. Moving on here, another shocking thing that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. January 6th, I know, people are tired of it. I'm a little tired of it myself, but... I found this to be very, very interesting, which is why I went ahead and kept it in my show notes here. A motion filed by a lawyer who are representing members of the Proud Boys, which the Proud Boys, if you don't know, is like a a right-wing, right-leaning activist group, mostly peaceful. Well, a lawyer representing them indicates that there were a significant, significant is the key word, number of FBI and law enforcement informants who had infiltrated the group and may actually be the ones responsible for pushing the whole event over the edge. Yes, 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 you heard me right. The truth is finally coming out. The Fed boys, it might have been them. The lawyers, uh, the motion that the lawyers made noted that FBI informants and confidential human sources, which are just plain clothes operators, undercover people, those law enforcement agents, these agents vastly outnumbered, the, like the Proud Boys. There may have been more undercover agents during the January 6th thing in within the Proud Boys than there were actual Proud Boys members, <laughs> which is crazy. That I mean, I right off the bat, I'm not a lawyer here, but to me, that sounds like entrapment. And where it gets really crazy here is, aside from the, all the plainclothes operators and police and FBI informants, aside from the sheer number of, of, those, of those individuals that were involved, which is scary in of itself, Body cam videos worn on January 6th by undercover Metropolitan Police officers show undercover officers cheering on the demonstrators, screaming, stop the steal, whose house, our house, we have to get in there, we have to stop the steal, go, go, go. They were actively encouraging these people. They were pushing them over the edge to go and raid the Capitol building. Again, how... How is that not entrapment? 
And I, I have a sneaking suspicion it might be entrapment. And I think that that's what this, these people that are representing members of the Proud Boys, I should say, I have a feeling that's what they might be pushing for because, boy, howdy, that sounds top-tier sketch. And a lot of people were kind of suspecting that the FBI and the police might have been involved in the event to begin with. Um, you know, this isn't the first time they've done this. The The government and the FBI, they actually do this a lot, and this might surprise you, with Black Lives Matter protests. During large, and this this is fully true, this has been very documented, and I'm bringing this up to showcase that law enforcement, specifically the FBI, has tactics in place that they regularly use, and it's not very far-stretched to think they're now using them against conservatives. During Black Lives Matter protests, uh, there was a common phenomenon where suddenly full pallets, yes, pallets of bricks, would show up on street corners in the middle of the protests. And nobody understood, like, is there construction going on? Is this raw material that was going somewhere? What is this? Well, I'll tell you what it was. The FBI would place these pallets of bricks to tempt the protesters to grab them and use them to smash windows and start violence. The FBI were actively giving these protesters tools to begin violence. And a lot of the times it worked. In a lot of BLM protests, violence did break out. And in a lot of cases... Those that enabled it and those that gave them the literal tools, literal bricks in order to engage in violence were the FBI. So that's just one specific example of how they infiltrate groups and actually encourage violence in order to stamp it out. And immediately, you know, you think, oh, that sounds conspiratorial. You know, what's their motive? Uh, Maybe the FBI is more neutral than we think. Like, why would they do that? Well, unfortunately... The motive and the conspiracy is not actually all that interesting or mysterious. As it turns out, there is actually a protocol for FBI informants that essentially they get what are basically Christmas bonuses for every domestic terrorist they bring in, every violent protester they bring in, every organization they bring down, they get money. And so if there's Joe Schmo at the Capitol on January 6th, and I encourage him to go into the building. Well, boy, howdy, I just got myself a terrorist. I had myself a domestic terrorist, a violent person, a felon. All I had to do was convince him to walk in, and I get $10,000. Look at me go. Now, the FBI will deny that they have this procedure, uh, but leaked internal documents that came out years and years ago would say otherwise. This has been something that's been going on with the FBI for decades now. This is, this is old news here. People just forgot about it. And it also, again, sort of lifts this this uh, shroud of the mystery of why would they do this? What's their incentive? Well, the incentive is these operators, these plainclothes operators and police and informants, well, they're just people. And they want to buy their kid a new bike. And for every terrorist, they quote-unquote terrorist, for every domestic violent terrorist they bring in, they get an extra five grand, an extra six grand, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever the money is. They get a little Christmas bonus. So the motives are not this mysterious thing. It's a very common, it, it's simple It's simple economics. I want more money in my paycheck. I have to go find more terrorists. Well, it might be easier to just to convince some dum-dum to walk into a building and there you go. I get 10 grand. That's simple. These are things that American people need to watch out for. As scary as other governments and foreign nations are, the founding fathers were mostly scared of our own government. And we have to remember that.
But okay, that's it. We won't talk about January 6th anymore. I know. It's a uh, beat to death horse. Let's let's go to let's go to something just as interesting. Katie Porter. Haven't heard of her? I don't blame you. Nobody has. She's a nobody. But she is a Democratic representative of a district in California. Katie Porter is a straight white woman. Woman. And I clarify that because of what's coming up next. She is an office holder. She's a U.S. representative in California. Katie Porter's former husband came out and said that Katie Porter abused him verbally and physically saying that she threw toys, books, and other objects at him during arguments in their marriage. He even claimed that she walked up to him and poured scalding hot mashed potatoes on his head during a fight because he wasn't cooking them correctly. Matthew Hoffman is this victim's name, this victim of domestic abuse's name. Matthew Hoffman filed for divorce from Katie Porter back in 2013, so this is fairly old here. But when he had filed for that divorce, he also requested a restraining order from her. He said that he was routinely called an effing idiot and effing incompetent by what he described his rage-prone spouse, Katie Porter. He said she also shattered a glass coffee pot on the kitchen counter in 2012 when she felt that their house wasn't clean enough. Which, oh, that makes perfect sense. The house is a mess. Let me shatter glass. That'll... That'll fix it right up. They're all my problems solved. That doesn't make any sense at all. He also claimed that she would not allow him to have a cell phone because, as she said, according to him, quote, you're too effing dumb to operate it, end quote. He also said when she gets angry, she will actually claw and scratch her own arms and then say, look what you made me do. If we've learned nothing from the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial, the one thing we should have taken away is that women can commit domestic abuse and men can be legitimately victims of domestic abuse by women. And frankly, kind of seems like that's what Matthew Hoffman has with this Democratic representative of California. Here's the crazy thing. If the ro- roles were reversed, if this was a male representative in the U.S. Congress who was abusing his wife like this, He would get canceled like that. Done. Career over. But because it's a woman, well, nobody seems that interested in holding her accountable. In fact, she tried to play the victim herself because after all of these claims were made against her, Katie Porter said, quote, well, he yelled at me too, end quote. She also cited him calling her the B word uh, and then said one time he punched a bathroom light so hard it broke. And then she said he threw a newspaper at me once. Well, not to, you know, make a hierarchy of pain here, but punching a bathroom light, he's not punching you. Throwing a newspaper, literally paper, he shouldn't have done that. I'm not saying it's okay that he did that. It's not. But that's very different than than pouring scalding hot mashed potatoes on somebody's head like she did. It's also very different than not allowing your spouse to own a cell phone Because you think that they're dumb. That's what? That's absurd. But she said because he yelled at her and and threw a newspaper at her once, because of that, she claims that she is a domestic abuse survivor. Sexism absolutely does exist in this country. And this is a perfect example of it.
This man is a legitimate survivor, a legitimate victim of actual domestic abuse, and nobody believes him because he's a guy, because of his sex. I think that's despicable. But that's all I got on that. Um, speaking of political families and political drama, George Soros, technically not a politician, but basically is at this point. The son of billionaire George Soros has quietly become a de facto White House ambassador. Remember, George Soros does not work at the White House. George Soros is not a publicly elected official. And yet his son has made at least 14 visits to the White House Perhaps this is the next Soros in line to become the decision maker. Alexander Soros is his name. He's a prolific Democratic fundraiser in his own right. Uh, He likes to boast about his relationships with world leaders on social media. Seriously, if you check out his Twitter and Instagram, it is just filled with photos of him with like Obama and Biden and, and foreign leaders. And it's flex central in a very creepy way. Well, Alexander has scored at least a dozen meetings uh, with various White House officials, including Biden, and that's just in 2022 alone. So I, I don't know. I, I personally, I don't really get that. You know, this guy isn't a politician, but he gets to meet these politicians. Like, like, can I do that? Can you do that? Can you just say, yeah, I'd, I'd like to put my name on the visitor list? Probably not. So why does he get to do it? Because he has money? Because he donates to Democrats? That doesn't seem very fair, but I guess fairness is out the window for some people. Speaking of the White House, uh, here's a pretty funny one that we got to laugh at this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. White House domestic policy advisor Susan Rice claims that racism has had a massive impact on the U.S. economy. Rice made this claim during a speech about the White House's commitment to promoting civil rights. And during her speech, she claimed, quite radically, I would argue, that the United States has suffered a 16 trillion, with a T, 16 trillion dollar shortfall because of racism. Essentially, she said that if this country was less racist, only, by the way, by the way, and I want to make this point as well, during her speech, The racism she's talking about is exclusively against black people, against African-Americans. She doesn't talk about Hispanic racism. She doesn't talk about Asian-American racism. She doesn't talk about any of that racism, specifically against black people. If, if If we woke up tomorrow, if America woke up tomorrow and was not racist against black people in any way, we would have 16 trillion more dollars just like that. Bam, we got it. When asked, you know, where is this math coming from? She said... If we ended racism today, in the next five years, we would have five trillion more. <laughs> so they said, where did you get this math? And she said, uh, five trillion. <laughs> so I, I don't know what she was on, but kind of a funny claim. A little bit goofy. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of ballsy to make during this, uh, you know, very tumultuous time for the U.S. economy. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's the White House for you. But that's it. That's pretty much all I got for you for this week's plot summary. Be sure to tune in next week on FM 102.9, 105.9, AM 1310, and on your smart speaker, News Talk KZRG. This week we did also see, though, the rise, the potential rise of the listener jar. Now, as you may know, on the Morning News Watch, we have a little competition between Peter, Steve, and myself. We have the Bad Joke Jar and the Peter's Right Jar. 
And whenever somebody gets a strike in any of those in either of those fields, we put our own color token in that jar. First person to run out of tokens loses pretty much the game. Well, we had a, a comment from one of our listeners, Rick, made a terrible joke, so bad, in fact, <laughs> that I'm introducing a third jar, the listener jar. And uh, so you're going to want to tune in on Facebook Live because that's where we do all of the token stuff. All the cool extra bonus content is all on Facebook Live for the most part. So you're going to want to tune in there. That's where all the, the good stuff is, including the new listener jar, which you will see the dawn of starting next week. And remember, if you ever miss anything, you can always catch it right here on Plot Summary with News Talk, KZRG.